0: A child of hope is born to us, a son is given, him shall God's grace and peace to all of you dear people, and welcome to this part of the service where we, in a special way, dig into the Word of God and seek His face for guidance for our lives. The Scripture says that, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. is that amazing? We don't often think of God being poor. (laughs) We don't often think about the poverty of Christ. And yet, when we think of Him coming to earth and taking on human flesh, that is poor. That is poverty for a God who is the creator of all things, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And through that poverty, we experience eternal life. We can experience what it means to be sons and daughters of the King. One bitter, cold winter night, Some years ago there was an old man who was sitting at his kitchen table and he heard some strange thumping on the storm door there at the kitchen. And so he stood up and walked over to a window and peeked out and what he saw was these cold shivering sparrows thumping against the storm door, attracted by the warmth, by the light, of that house trying to come in and this touched the old man and so he bundled up got his boots on and he trudged out through the snow to his barn he opened the doors of the barn he turned some lights on he threw some hay in the one corner and he then he got some saltine crackers and he made a little trail of saltine crackers that went into the barn hoping that would. Lead the sparrows, those suffering sparrows, to that place of warmth and light, shelter from the storm. But the sparrows, they had already scattered in all directions, and they were hiding in the shadows. And so he tried some various other tactics. He tried to circle around the sparrows and maybe kind of chase them into the barn, and that didn't work so well. As he walked around looking in the trees and bushes, he kind of tried to throw some crackers up in the air, thinking that maybe they would get the point and and follow him to the barn, and that didn't work out. He wasn't sure what to do. He said, well, I'll just leave the barn open for them and the lights on, and maybe they'll find their way. But he just couldn't understand why the sparrows didn't like him, why they didn't trust him, why they were so scared. He was trying to help them. He went back to the house and he sat down and just kind of stared into the nothingness of the night. and, And as he stared, a thought hit him like a lightning bolt. And that was, if I could only be a bird, If I could only be a sparrow, if I could be one of them for just a moment, I could show them the way to warmth. I could show them the way to light, to safety from the storm. And about the same moment, another thought dawned on his mind, and that was he grasped the concept of the Incarnation. Of God putting on flesh and becoming man, becoming one of us. Oh, it was but just a moment, perhaps, but he became one of us for the purpose of leading us out of the storm, as it were, and into the light, warmth, and safety of the barn. (laughs) God's kingdom. God's presence. You know, it truly would be something for a man to become a bird. <laughs> that would be no small feat. But let me tell you, dear people, that a man becoming a bird is still nothing <laughs> compared to God, the great creator, the mighty Lord of Lord and King of Kings, becoming a man. I say it still doesn't compare. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he exclaimed this way, But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. And granted, the house that he had built was truly a magnificent house. I mean, this was no little deal. It was elaborate in all proportions. And yet he said, it's nothing. It's nothing. You know, the concept of a King of Kings being bigger than the universe he created, yet confined to a human body, was and is today still too hard for people to believe. Many people just cannot grasp it. They struggle with that. Is this how a king should come? (coughs) Certainly not, they say. You know, and even for the people back in that time, they had this preconceived idea of how a king should come. He would come on a white horse. He would come as a conqueror. He would come marching through the city with soldiers, and that's how a king should come. And yet, in their wildest imagination, they never dreamed that a king would come in the form of a poor little baby lying in a feeding trough. Absolutely not. That was outside of the box, as it were. But it is this concept, and in fact, it is this reality, once again, that compels us to remember what Christmas is all about. What is the real meaning of Christmas? And so this morning, for a few moments, we want to ponder the wonder of the Incarnation. That's what I've titled the message, The Wonder of the Incarnation. In 1 Timothy 3:16, Paul writes, "And without controversy great is the mystery of godliness: God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory." <laughs> Paul writes I mean, beyond all question, great is this mystery that God was manifest. God appeared in a body, in human form. This morning, we would like to look at the following points. We're going to note the prophecy of the Incarnation the preparation for the Incarnation, the presentation of the Incarnation, the purpose of the Incarnation, the power of the Incarnation, and the fact that the Incarnation is personal. Now, that sounds like a long message, but uh, it won't be that long. (laughs) You know, it is Christmas Eve, right? The prophecy of the Incarnation, and I invite you to Genesis 3, verse 15... And here we have the first glimmer of the gospel. Genesis 3:15. And this is the Lord God speaking unto the serpent. And we read, "I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now this verse has often been referred to as the protevangelium of the Bible. Protevangelium, meaning the first gospel. I say it's the first glimmer of the gospel that we find in the Bible. And the protevangelium shows us clearly that God always had a plan of salvation in mind. In fact, in Revelation, we read about a lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, it's referring to a lamb that was slain before the world ever was. Before the world was created, God had the plan of salvation in mind. When man fell into sin there in the garden, it didn't take God by surprise. He didn't say, Oh no, I never saw that coming. Now, what should we do? (laughs) Not at all. But immediately, he informed us of his plan. As soon as sin entered, there was a plan in place. And this is what it was I will put enmity between thy seed, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. And so this verse prophesies the incarnation of Christ. Prophesying God becoming man. You see, the one who would do battle with Satan and destroy him with a tremendous death blow would be the seed of a woman. But not only that, dear people, this is even greater. This prophecy points to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now you say, how is that possible? Where do we find that? Once again, Satan's defeat and the defeat of his kingdom would come from the seed of a woman. It clearly says that. The seed of a woman. It speaks of her seed, not the man's seed, not Adam's seed. It does not speak of their seed, the man and the woman, but it says her seed... That is central. Look in that verse. It is in the very middle. And it's central in more ways than one. Deliverance would come from the woman without the aid of a man. It's a powerful thought. I give you a quote from Dr. Henry Morris, founder and president of the Institute of Creation Research, quoting from his commentary on Genesis 3.15. And this is what he says, "...the seed of the woman can only be an allusion to a future descendant of Eve, who would have no human father. Biologically, a woman produces no seed. Other than just several instances, the Bible always speaks of the seed of men. This promised seed, capital S, would therefore have to be miraculously implanted in the womb." In this way, he would not inherit the sin nature that would disqualify every son of Adam from becoming the Savior from sin. This prophecy thus clearly anticipates the future virgin birth of Christ. It's beautiful. I say that is the first glimmer of the gospel that we find in Scripture. But turn to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, and this is a more familiar verse that we often hear around Christmas. Here is a prophecy that also speaks of the virgin birth. A prophecy of the incarnation, chapter 7 of Isaiah, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. A virgin? That's not possible, is it? Who's the sign coming from? The Lord Himself, a virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. This is the prophecy of the Incarnation. Let's move on now and consider preparation for the Incarnation. And let's turn to Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to young Mary. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. And in the sixth month, the sixth month of what? Well, prior to this, we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, we're coming to Elizabeth's cousin, Mary. And so, Elizabeth... Six months along, and now Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women." And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. And cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. (laughs) And so you can imagine this young girl wondering, what's this all about? What is he grooming me for? What is he getting ready to say? This is strange. And so she's troubled at this. And the angel said unto her, verse 30, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Incredible news, is it not? How does Mary respond? Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Now, if you know the story, you understand that Zechariah also had a question for the angel. That didn't turn out so well. And you have to read a bit between the lines. It doesn't say that Zechariah's scoffed. It doesn't say that he cleared his throat or snorted. It doesn't say that he rolled his eyes. But it does say or implies that him and his wife had been praying for a child because the angel came and said, Zacharias, your prayers have been answered." So they had been praying for a child. Were they still praying? I don't know. They probably were when they were younger. But at some point, maybe along the way, they decided, you know what? Elizabeth, we're kind of old. I'm not sure this is going to work anymore. I have a feeling they stopped praying because they decided that it was impossible. And so now the angel comes to them and he says... Surprise. And Zachariah says, (laughs) I don't think so. And the angel said, because you believed not my word, you will be struck dumb. Now can you imagine those thoughts rolling through his mind for the next nine months? Because you believed not my word. You believed not my word. Now the angel comes to Mary... And Mary also has a question. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Dear people, that's a different question altogether. Mary wasn't that kind of a girl, you see. Mary understood, even in her young, simple mind, that this would mean sin. This would involve sin for her to be in this position. She wasn't that kind of a girl. How will this be? I don't know a man. I find it interesting that when Zacharias did not believe God, he also had no spiritual proclamation to make. He was struck dumb. Mary believed, and she had a spiritual overflow. (laughs) She praised God. Dear people, there is a direct connection between believing God and having a spiritual proclamation. There's a direct connection there. And you realize later in the story, when Zacharias then wrote, His name shall be John, which was not according to the common custom. When he wrote that, he proved that he had learned his hard lesson, and that he now believed God. Contrary to what the culture said, his name is John. What happened? His tongue was loosed. And then he spoke. There's a direct connection there. But that's sort of a bunny trail. Let's get back to this. So Mary says, how is this going to be? Seeing I know not a man. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth. She hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be be impossible. And Mary said, this is her response. Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. Handmaid there speaking of the lowest form of a female slave. Lord, I am nothing. That's her response. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to Thy word." Divine conception. I truly believe that's when Mary conceived. Why? It was an attitude of complete surrender to God's will. It was belief in the, quote, impossible. She believed God. And the angel departed from her. Preparation for the incarnation. The incarnation happened through people who were surrendered, through people who believed, who, through people who, who had faith in the impossible. They had faith in God. People who obeyed. Even when you fill in the blank. Because as we move back to Matthew chapter 1, we have then the angel of the Lord coming to Joseph. And can you imagine the bind he was in when he finds out that his dear Mary was now pregnant? Can you imagine what he was going through? The anguish of that How was he supposed to know? And the angel came to him and told him. Told him the news. Told him not to fear. Told him to go ahead and take Mary as his wife. And it says, he did. He did as the Lord commanded him. I say, God works in mighty ways through people who are surrendered, people who obey people who display unwavering faith, God works the impossible through those kind of people. Be a Joseph and a Mary. Okay, dear people, be a Joseph and a Mary. Preparation for the incarnation. I notice here back in Luke chapter 1 that Elizabeth said this in verse 45, and blessed is she that believed. This meant something to, to Elizabeth because she had a husband that didn't. And and she was reaping the consequences of that. Now she had a dumb husband. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. <laughs> but, but she did. Okay. And she said now to her cousin Mary, the Blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. There shall be a performance. And so next we come to the presentation of the incarnation. And let's turn a page to Luke chapter 2. Elizabeth prophesied there would be a performance. (laughs) Uh, We'll call it a presentation here in Luke chapter 2. Let's start at verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, And laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for them in the inn. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) There it is. There is the incarnation. There is God. Revealing himself to the world. In human flesh. There's no fanfare. There's no glamour. There's no. Fancy motel. There's no hospital. He came quietly. And he still comes quietly today to people's hearts. That's how he comes. He doesn't come in any big emotional appeal and and rock music blaring and smoke and lights and all that stuff. No, he comes in spirit and in truth quietly to hearts that are open and surrendered. I want you, though, just to ponder for a moment the humility of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, the fragility of Jesus Christ, choosing to come as a little baby. And those of us who have had little babies, we know the the fragility of that little child. We know how dependent they are on us. We know how much care they need. We know the protection that is necessary. Do you understand that God, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Heaven's armies, was putting Himself in this lowly, vulnerable position. Placing Himself into the hands the Creator into the hands of the created. It's hard to fathom. I quote, The claim that Christianity makes for Christmas is that at a particular time and place, God came to be with us Himself. When Cyrenius was governor of Syria in a town called Bethlehem, a child was born Who, beyond the power of anyone to account for, was the high and lofty one, made low and helpless. The one who inhabits eternity comes to dwell in time. The one whom none can look upon and live is delivered in a stable under the soft, indifferent gaze of cattle. You can picture the cattle, the sheep, the donkeys. just kind of looking there, making their animal noises. They don't have a clue. And that's the scene that Jesus Christ chose to appear in. The Father of all mercies puts Himself at our mercy. The Apostle Paul comments on this in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Speaking of Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made, God was made, in the likeness of men. Let's consider now the purpose of the Incarnation. The purpose of the incarnation. Why did Jesus Christ come in that way? You know, God could have sent His Son in a number of different ways. He could have sent Him as a fully grown man. He could have even dropped the baby off, if it was going to be a baby. He could have dropped Him off on the doorstep of of a house. And someone found Him. He could have done all kinds of things, but why did God choose to do it this way? You know, the night that God came into the world as a little baby ranks as one of the greatest moments in human history. It was a night of tremendous blessing, a night of tremendous miracles. It was a night that God moved into the world to live, but even more than that, to die. God moved into the world to die. And Jesus said some years later that the Son of Man has come as a ransom for many. He has come as a ransom for many to give His life as a ransom for many. Once again, the angel of the Lord Speaking to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, we read, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from what? From their sins. Notice the emphasis. He shall save his people from their sins. Now the people were certainly waiting and longing for a deliverer. Someone to free them from the very stiff rule of the Romans. Someone to set everything at peace. They thought someone would come to deliver them in that kind of a way. But the angel of the Lord said that His name will be Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. Spiritual deliverance. You see, here we have in this verse the purpose of the incarnation clearly spelled out. And it's really not hard to understand. Jesus came to bring salvation from sins. Jesus came to bring freedom from the bondage of sins. Jesus came to bring deliverance in a way that, that supersedes all other kinds of deliverance. It's deliverance inside. It's freedom. It restores that relationship with God the Father. And so, when that freedom is maintained, when that freedom has been given, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter what situation you're in, it doesn't matter what prison or bondage you're in physically, when you are free inside, you are truly free indeed, as Jesus says. And Jesus came to bring that kind of freedom to deal with the heart issue of man, not just simply the symptoms. His name, Jesus, defines His purpose. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which means, the Lord saves. The Lord saves, for He will save His people from their sins. His name is Jesus. You know, many people today find the name of Jesus to be offensive. Why is that? Perhaps it's because embedded in that name is a call to salvation, is a call to come to me. Yeah. But for those of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, there is no sweeter name in all the world than Jesus. You know that. And perhaps you've experienced it as I have at times when life feels overwhelming. Perhaps you've fallen on your knees and just breathed out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And there is a calming that comes upon you. There is a peace that comes with breathing the name of Jesus. It is dear to us. Jesus spoke many times about the purpose of His coming. Jesus clearly understood that He was here to carry out a mission that would change the world forever. Matthew 18 verse 11, "The Son of Man is come, why? To save that which is lost." J- John 12 verse 47. "And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world." John 18:37, and here we have Jesus standing before Pilate. And he says to Pilate, "To this end was I born." And for this cause came I into the world. What's that? That I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And really, as he stood before Pilate, he was asking Pilate, Pilate, are you for truth? Are you for truth? I came into this world. I was born to be a display of truth, to bear record of the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. The purpose of the incarnation But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. There is so much packed into those few verses. At just the right time. God sent forth His Son at just the right time. You see, we could wonder why God waited so long. I mean, it's been many, many hundreds of years since the Protevangelium was pronounced in the Garden of Eden. Why did God wait so long? But when the fullness of the time was come, God knew when the time was ripe to send forth His Son. Plenty of time had passed for man to try to save himself. Plenty of time had passed. Much effort had been exhausted, you could say, for righteousness, for peace with God, for restored relationship to be attained through what I could do. Through what man could do. But at just the right time, God sent forth His Son. Made of a woman. Notice that He was also made in subjection to the law. One of us. He put Himself equal with us. In In our place, along with us, being subjected to the law. Notice here, the beauty in verse 6. Because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Who is crying, Abba, Father? (laughs) It's not me. It's not you. It is the Spirit that is interceding for us. It is the Spirit that is sensing our need. We are not even able to cry out to God without the Spirit of God working on our behalf. It's the Spirit that is interceding and crying out, Abba Father, oh dear Daddy Father, on behalf of this dear one, your child. Beautiful, beautiful. We are no more a servant but a son, therefore an heir of God through Christ. Let's move on yet and consider the power of the incarnation. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 1. that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We're talking about the power of the incarnation. The power of God becoming flesh. God being made in the likeness of sinful flesh. There's power there. And the writer here, the Apostle Paul, says that what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending His Son Jesus to be made like us in the likeness of sinful flesh and to be a sin offering for us on our behalf. What was the law powerless to do? Well, the law was powerless, verse 2, It could not bring us freedom from the law of sin and death. The law could not do that. The law was powerless to bring salvation. The law was powerless to make us perfect before God. Hebrews 7 verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. You see, Jesus Christ brought in a new and a living way. We no no longer must go through the requirements of the law in order to access God. But now Jesus is the way to God. And that's the power, dear people, of the Incarnation. God coming in the flesh, bringing freedom from the old law, and giving us direct and intimate access to God the Father through the blood of Jesus. And we read in, in Hebrews chapter 10 that now we have boldness to enter into the holiness, holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. That is to say, the veil. A new and living way. And so, as we accept this wonderful plan of salvation, we can then experience the work, the power in our lives. And I say, we must accept it. Because God's salvation to us, Jesus is the unspeakable gift of God given to men. But what good is a gift if it's not received? We must receive it. We must accept it. And it is through that receiving and accepting and believing that we then can enjoy that power in our everyday lives. It's the power of Jesus Christ that helps us to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit and to walk in that, to live that way. It changes our lives. Because when Jesus Christ comes into our life through faith, then we are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. But it happens through accepting the gift that God has extended to us that is Jesus Christ his own son who was crucified on the cross for our sins it is by grace that you are saved through faith let us notice yet how that the incarnation is personal it's personal dear people Jesus Christ came down from heaven to earth for you, for you. And I heard someone say just recently that Jesus is not the reason for the season, you are. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying, I'm not trying to, to split hairs here. Sure, Jesus Christ is central to the Christian celebration. Don't get me wrong, but you are the reason that Jesus Christ came. You are the reason that he suffered and died. You are. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you." Remember those two words, for you. Who by Him do believe in God that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. For you. It says that He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but He was in these last days manifest for you. Are there any two word phrases that are more personal than that? For you. You see, Jesus came down from the glories of heaven to this sin sick earth for you. Jesus died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice and substitute for you. For you. Jesus rose from the grave for you. Jesus is interceding at the right hand of the Father for you. And Jesus Christ is soon returning for you. Dear people, the gospel is so intimately personal. The incarnation is personal because it's for you. That's why Jesus came. And so at Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of a king. And rightly so. But my question is this morning, has he been born in your heart? Is that King of kings and Lord of lords, is he Lord of your life? You see, Christmas isn't really Christmas till it happens in your heart. And you can do all kinds of celebrating. And you can throw all kinds of parties. And you can give all kinds of gifts. But until Jesus Christ is the King of your heart, you will not truly know what Christmas is all about. And so I just leave this with you. May the wonder of the incarnation, may it not only touch your life this season, but may it change you May it change your soul for all eternity. And that happens once again through acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and walking in faithfulness and obedience to Him.